There's a story about Wall Street in here, but humor us a little first. Let's take you back. Back to a time when this once great city could tolerate a bar with a name like Cokie's. A fine establishment where you could buy shitty cocaine and do endless lines of them in a cocaine booth. A time before cell phones, when email was how you communicated in college. There was no ever-present medium of constant contact, and yet we had synchronicity, a feeling of being free in the streets. It was an entirely different concept of time and space to get bored in. It wasn't always collegial. Try asking a taxi to take you to Brooklyn back then. The cabbie would look at you like you asked him to fly to China on a single-engine prop plane. Now, before you roll your eyes and order another pizza on DoorDash, this is after the last tech bubble blew up. We're not talking Mad Men or the 1990s or anything that far back. There was a ton of IPO money sloshing around, and most of it was friends with artists. And those were the parties you wanted to go to. The beauty of this snapshot of time in New York, the genius of this city, was that you could leave your house and run into someone and hang out with them. And then they'd take you to the next place, and you'd run into other people. And before you knew it, you have a posse, and you're launching into the night until 4 in the morning on some adventure. That aspect of New York, which remains a hidden part of the city to this day, is what it felt like to be a no-problem client. Just making it up as you go, collecting your crew as you stumbled along seemingly randomly. But there's something that connects all of you. And the criteria for that something is pretty minimal. But that's the beauty of being young. You were a homer. But in an era of duff, it set the party on. It was just this infectious, super wild, don't give a crap, awesome, fun, silly thing. In particular, a new dealer experience was very exciting. Dinners, drugs, expensive wine. I don't know who's paying for the drugs, it was just there. You're sitting with people who have what seems like an endless expense account to basically do whatever you want, and their job is to impress you and show you a good time. I certainly took advantage of that. Everything looks impressive from the wrong side of the bridge. The wine might cost five times as much as my suit, but we chose the restaurant. It was us calling the shots at the tail end of the over-the-top dealer expenses era. Ask yourself, what would have you done in a position like that? Before you answer, remember, context matters. This was before LinkedIn, Facebook, even digital photography to some extent. Incredibly, at the turn of the century, New York bars still had signs up with no dancing because you needed a special license to accommodate such obscene behavior. They actually had an agency inside the city dedicated to catching people violating the no-dance rule and shutting businesses down. No kidding. That's why the first cabaret licenses were given out in the meatpacking district. It was all hookers and literally meatpacker plants down there. No one gave a shit about those people. In contrast, your reputation on Wall Street was built on actions and word of mouth. Myself? I wanted to be a drunk who stayed up all night and could fly a helicopter or do calculus. That required drugs. And lots of them. I loved being stoned in New York and will never tell anyone not to do it. This is right at the tail end of New York being cool. We were going to bars and there was still smoking indoors and everyone was doing drugs right out in the open and everything was just happening. <sighs> All that said, this is the scene. It's a tale about an overnight broker dealer who used to regularly get trashed to black out every Thursday. This guy was a total unit, over six feet, 210, all of it farm boy muscle. So no one really used to screw with him in or out of the office. His biggest problem was he could never leave the shadow of his former job. Understandably so, since he had once worked for a hedge fund doing U.S. hours in a time when that job was better than being president. I'm not sure what his shop ran back then, but for the sake of argument, let's say he worked for a single-digit billion-dollar fund with high turnover. Everyone was friends with his seat, and in fairness, friends with him too. But after dutifully unwinding the investor money after one crisis or another, he found the job market had changed dramatically. 
At the same time, his fund reconstituted itself as a family office. This is before it was fashionable to do so. But what was most disturbing is they hired a new human resources team from Bankers Trust. Our hero meets with them and they say he can take over the head trading job for 125. They'll give him another 10K curtain money. It's tempting. But he asks for 25 more. 160 and he can take this to the wife to discuss staying in the city. Otherwise, it's to the burbs for the lot of them. The Bankers Trust team say they'll think about it and everyone goes their separate ways. A week or so later, he's called into the head office. Now, I've met his boss, and he was a good dude. By comparison, if I was the son of a billionaire, you can bet I'd be a real son of a bitch. But this guy is cut from different cloth. He used to take the subway to work. One time I saw him on the R train and noticed a hole in his backpack had been sewn unprofessionally. I remember thinking, what kind of rich guy stitches his own backpack up? The answer to that, of course, is the kind of person who knows the value of money. Anyway, our hero walks into his boss's office and the banker's trust team is standing behind the big desk. His boss says, HR says you want another 25000 is that right? Is twenty-five that much to you? And our hero says, I don't know. Is twenty-five that much to a billion-dollar fund? It's twenty-five grand. The HR guy pipes in here, says, I'm not sure the family would like that attitude. And our hero shoots back with, what family are you talking about? You're getting a divorce, if I'm not mistaken. Who the fuck are you to talk to me about family? There's an uncomfortable silence, and then his boss says, fair enough, I don't know why we're even negotiating at this point, but you have to work overnight hours from now on. One of the banker's trust douchebags tries to butt in here, but the boss silences him with a contemptuous look. Then he turns back and drops the hammer. We're giving the head trader job to someone else, but you can work the suicide shift. See how you like that for a while. Our hero says he'll take the offer to the wife and let the hedge fund know what they decide. Skip ahead a few years. By now, the new overnight guy, let's call him Handsome Jim, has not only a new appreciation for the international trading job, but is a genuine expert at what he does. He's unconsciously competent, all muscle memory. Jim's main problem is he just doesn't work enough. Europe wasn't a big market back then. If you doubt me, pull up a 20-year chart of their stock market index, which is known as the Eurostox, and it hasn't regained its 2009 highs. By comparison, the S&P breezed through that market years ago. Jim works two hours a shift, and for a while, that's fine with him. If you can get your business done before your first square meal, your firm needs to pay you for the job you did, not the hours. Said differently, an employer pays you for your years of experience, not the hours in a single day. But idle hands get into mischief, and one night he's out drinking with one of his prime broker salespeople. If you get a chance to talk to someone in prime brokerage, well, grab fortune by the foreskin and pick their brain. PBs are particularly well positioned to understand the future of our business, and Jim knows this. So he plies the PB guy with drinks, insisting on picking up the tab. This is a common buy-side trick. Pick up the beers as a client, and you'll throw salespeople completely off their game. While they're on balance, pay attention, and you might learn something new. The PB sales guy tells him that going forward, Wall Street will be all about three main themes. Outsourcing, automation, juniorification. That essentially the job of a top-shelf buy-side trader will be to make yourself redundant. That's what operations and fund management had come down to. Jim thinks to himself, well, you can't do anything about your age, but two out of three is good odds in any business. Decides to get ahead of the curve and quits his hedge fund to work for an outsourced trading shop. So long story short, he's moved to the sell side, babysitting overnight trades in Europe and Asia for startup funds. But as we alluded to earlier, he still has that buy side attitude. Can't leave well enough alone. It's an Achilles heel of sorts, like getting too deep into his beers. Anyway, Jim and our crew used to moonlight over at Stinger on Grand Street. It was just a saloon. But there was a sign behind the bar that said, get naked, you get a free shot. Oral sex, you get three free shots. Fuck on the bar, you get an open tab. And all those things happened while we were there. 
you'd see the sign and think, this has got to be pretty hot. It's actually not when you're having a drink with a friend and you look behind you and there's a dick in someone's mouth. Compared to today, Brooklyn was pretty amazing back then, and in an age when you really didn't need the energy and ambition to worry about that much. There's just things that you don't care about that allow you to be free and experimental and take big risks and live in a dirty place and don't give a shit. Rent was cheap. Budget out one proper meal a day, the subway, beer, and hope you had enough money for weed. That's all you needed. It was so cheap that you could afford to take chances and fail. If you failed, it didn't matter because you lived under the Williamsburg Bridge. If you fail in Midtown, it's different. If you're in the professional world now and you act all fucked up around the office, you get fired. But if you were on Wall Street back then, no one fired you. You could be a big mental case all day, every day, and it was fine. That's why trading desks were so volatile and hard to keep together. They only stayed together when they acknowledged what a privileged position they were in, and none of us were mature enough back then to recognize that. I digress again. Let's circle back to Handsome Jim. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not like Jim owned anyone back then. He was just guilty of the general sins of his generation. Said differently, he hadn't lost a sense of humor. One of Jim's favorite jokes was to troll the traders he had been out with earlier in the night. He soon became a bit of a Wall Street legend, playing various tricks on them first thing in the morning. Almost famous for this, it actually got to the point where some of his clients were genuinely offended if he hadn't tried it on them. All is well in Jim's world, and his reputation grew until his firm had him pitch the most important new client on the street. It's the biggest hedge fund launch in a decade, with well over a billion in commitments before they even signed their Madison Avenue lease. The head trader was a consummate professional and had a reputation of someone who doesn't suffer fools gladly. Anyway, a hedge fund launch that size doesn't need an outsourced trading desk. They probably have two overnight guys as well as a swing trader. Jim's firm has some solid connections, though, and they managed to get the head trader out for dinner. The head trader and Jim are similar in size. Ex-football guys used to wrapping up their counterparties at the first handshake. It's funny. When you see two genuinely massive guys meet for the first time, I've noticed they'll eye each other suspiciously like they're figuring out how to best kill the other one. So the two firms meet for this important dinner, and Jim's on his best behavior, charming and forthright. The head trader relaxes a little, and the two of them get to serious drinking. First beers, then several bottles of Screaming Eagle. After that, the two of them move to shots, and no one else can keep up. Finally, the head trader has drunk as full and says enough, that they need to address the elephant in the room. A prestigious firm like his, with the resources at their disposal, what do they need from an outsourced trading shop? Jim explains best practice should be to allow an outsourced desk to do everything for a couple weeks every year, just in case there's another 9-11 or a Sandy. In the same way you have two data centers, you need two trading operations for a fund that size. It's the perfect response, succinct and to the point. I should know. I helped him come up with it. The rest of the dinner goes smoothly, the clients depart, and Jim meets his crew over on Grand. He owes me for my help on his pitch, and drinks are on him. Skip forward a few hours, and the whole circus is piling out of a bar, and we've been hammered into another dimension. Even though he's the center of attention, having bought rounds for the bar all night, Jim waves us away, breaks off to talk on his cell phone. It's the break of dawn. He calls up the head trader from earlier in the night, says, Hey, you sold that 15 million Vodafone we discussed over dinner. There's a huge buyer taking it up. It's screaming higher. You're out of yard already. What do you want to do? That early, his clients would always make the same mistake. Freak the hell out. Then Jim would normally say, just messing with you. That's for making me pay for beers last night. But the trader hangs up the phone before Jim can get his punchline out. Reverses the 15 million Vodafone, loses money doing that. Then reverses the unwind, loses money doing that too. Perhaps he loses money all over again, unwinding the unwind before they realize there was no trade to cover in the first place. Anyway, Handsome Jim works at Amazon now, 